Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And the year of 2023, the season is upon us now that all of the Ultra Lotteries have shook themselves out. Everybody knows more or less what they're going to be doing for the remainder of the year. And I bet all of you listening have some semblance of the races that you want to train for. All of our coaches are in the same mode. We have all of our athletes, their calendars are all laid out. And now what do we do? So on the podcast today, we're going to talk about just exactly that. How do we lay out a whole season's worth of training for a particular athlete? On the podcast today, I have coaches Duncan Callahan, Coach AJW, and Coach John Fitzgerald to talk about what we do with our athletes now that their calendars are laid out. What things do we take into consideration when considering their planning? How do we develop their strengths and weaknesses over the course of time? And the all-important question, how much racing is too much racing? I know that a lot of you listeners out there have that question right on the front of your four reins. We go through it all in a very practical manner. This is very much a coaching exercise. This is a coaching exercise that we do with any of our coaches and our group. This is how we would lay it out for our particular athletes. So whether you are a coached athlete, whether you think you want to take on a coach for this next season, or if you are trying to DIY your own training process, I hope that you gain some valuable insight into how we do it as professionals with our particular athlete group. All right, with that as a backdrop, I'm getting right out of the way. Here's my conversation with our coaches all about long range planning and how to lay your season out. Duggan was aware of this because he was on the coaching call uh, earlier today, and uh, I was looking over the the sheet of where all of our athletes are going and where, where all of our coaches are going this year so far, so far as we know. And pretty much all the lotteries are done, right? I think the last one is Tour de Jant, or the last big one is Tour de Jant. Wasatch is still this oh, weekend Wasatch. as well. Yeah, Wasatch yeah. is this weekend as well, you're right. But for the most part, say 90%, everybody's seasons are kind of like set. And so I know that all of us have, as coaches have been kind of going through this process of, okay, all, right, all not only all of our athletes, but each individual athlete now has their kind of like race calendar and also their training and camp calendar uh, flushed out for the most part. And the next step in the process is, is what we would call long range planning, but it's really determining what the workout flow is generally going to look like throughout the course of a year. And so what I wanted to do with this conversation is, is kind of like bring to light how we do that. Hopefully we learn a little, a little bit from, from each other. And then the audience, whether they're working with a coach or whether they're trying to like plan out their own uh, training can take that as a little bit of a cue for what things to look for, how to set it up. And then down the line how to make course corrections because that's probably where i've changed a lot as a coach is just trying to make those course corrections as, as things go along so we'll, we'll like kick it off with now that we've got like the like the racing part of it planned out what are the things that each of you take into consideration when trying to determine this overall long-range plan this overall flow from january to whenever these races are are happening in the summer john since you're on my immediately on my left and we haven't talked in a long time i'm gonna pick i know, on, I'm, gonna, I know I'm gonna pick on you first 
Yeah. So kind of, you know, the first part I like to start with is just where the athlete currently is. So, you know, I like to just talk about physical health, you know, are there any, cause sometimes that just, you know, an athlete starts to get their race calendar kind of dialed in, they kind of, it can be easy to kind of neglect the little things like how you're just feeling right now. So I think it's a good conversation to have is like, how, where are we, where are we right now from a physical standpoint? Are there anything, any niggles, anything that we should kind of take care of now before we start getting super excited about this build into these events? And that also goes to the mental side because that's, you know, if there's a mental uh, piece that's holding us back or that's, you know, preventing us from enjoying the training or getting into some good training, let's start to work through that now, as opposed to, you know, a month or two down the road when we're in the thick of training and, you know, we're coming off the rails and things are harder to kind of work through. So I think the first thing kind of called setting the stage is like mental, physical health. And then I think we can tie that into uh, takeaways from the previous year. Um, Again, I think that's something that's often overlooked as we get super excited, the races are on the calendar, but then we don't really have this reflection point on, what can we work on? What can we improve? You know, what are some things that went really well? And using the data that hopefully some good data we've collected over the year to kind of make some adjustments. Um, but again, that's more of the here and the now. And that lays kind of that platform for the decisions that we ultimately will make and the conversations about the blocks of training weeks and months that we're going to get into. So John brings up a really interesting point that where you always have to meet the athletes where they're at at the present time. And, you know, inevitably this, the following sequence of of events usually happen around this time. I get into race X, Y, Z, and that's in July. What does my longest long run need to be in June? What do I need to do to build up into that longest long run in May? And the, the point that they're forgetting is John was, you know, so eloquently saying is, is, well, where are you at right now? You can't, you can't neglect that piece of it because you're starting from somewhere. And we've always used this like coaching analogy where we're trying to build a bridge between where the athlete is right now and where they kind of, where they want to go. The building of that bridge, you need to have some structure behind it. That's what we're talking about today. But the building of that bridge is more influenced by the first point where you are right now versus where you want to go. And that's because you can only handle so much, right? You can only handle so much training, so much mental skills, so many, you know, strength training activities or whatever you're throwing at you based on where you are kind of like right here and right now. So that's a really, that's, that's an extremely important point, John, that I completely agree with you is that yes, all this overarching architecture is, is important, but you've got to start with, where the athlete is at the current moment in time. Yeah. And one thing just to add, I mean, and sometimes that's really hard to do, yeah. you know, sometimes we want to be a little bit potentially in denial of the fact that, Hey, this is nagging me. My knee is not hundred percent healthy or whatever it is because we're, we might be so fixated on this super fun event that we have coming up. So I think when, if we train to the reality that we're in and we train to where we are currently, then we're not going to make decisions that might be a little bit rushed or, you know, Hey, we got to get the ball rolling. We got to get the long run up this weekend or, or do we really, we're not healthy yet. So maybe we shouldn't. So I think that's just a good place personally for me that I like to start with uh, just a reflection point. And I don't know if, Duncan or Andy, if you guys have something similar that you guys do, I think we're all, we're, we're all on the same page that we like to have some kind of a, a season review of some sort with their athletes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Season review. I, I was going to look at it from the, from the perspective of a new athlete coming in okay. and, 
you know, obviously you've got to do an assessment. Okay. Where is this athlete at with their current training, current injury, current life, et cetera. But I did want to highlight, I think it's interesting. I've, I've experienced some athletes that contact CTS and, and come through my pipeline and they say things like, I want to do, you know, Leadville or Moab or name the race in two years, three years, you know, a couple years out. I want to get in the pipeline now. And I've, I've seen some great success with that. I've got one. I just had one today reach out. Hey, I'm, I'm in Leadville uh, this year. Want to get in coaching. Do you think six months is too much time for coaching? You know? And so I, I think that's an interesting point to make is that I think both extremes are maybe extreme, but if, if we can get people in the door sooner rather than later, I think it helps uh, with outcomes. Absolutely. So yeah. that's just an interesting take. And then we, of course, then, yeah, you've got to look at the assessment of the athlete training history. Uh, you know, I've some athletes that have a robust training history, Strava training peaks. Otherwise some have none uh, recorded. Yeah. You know, that's a tough spot to start from because you're, you're basically trying to cajole the answers out of them, you know, verbally or in a written form. Mm. So, yeah. I've got, this is a real timely topic for me because I had a planning conversation with one of my athletes just earlier this morning and it was basically, oh crap, I got into UTMB. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and he was an athlete that I, that I've been coaching a couple of years. He did Western States last year. So I know him well, he lives in Dubuque, Iowa. So a lot of the training for UTMB, uh, challenge that folks who don't live in the Alps have to deal with. So a lot of our, this initial conversation after, Oh crap, I'm in UTMB is how are we going to do this? Right. So it was, so you, the, the, the thing is out there, right. The, 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 he's lucky. He got picked. He knows he's going to Chamonix, you know, at the end of August, how is my going to get there? John, to your point, I, then of course I'm like, well, you know, right now you're doing six to eight hours a week. And right now you, it's been a while since your last tempo block, your long run is about, you know, two and a half hours, you know, mm-hmm. Dubuque, Iowa's covered in snow, you know, so we've got a lot of work to do. And so in my case, and I, I said this in an earlier podcast, because with my athletes that are in big target races this year, I'm insisting on the training camp model, uh, whether they're in Western States and they go to the actual training camp or they're in Leadville and they go to the actual Leadville training camp or they build their own training camp. So literally after talking to Tom and just for you know a few minutes and figuring out you know where we're thinking of for the next couple of weeks, I was like, okay, we've got to get your training camp on the calendar right now. Yes. Right. So go, let's count back five weeks, five weeks, give or take from uh, UTMB and let's get that on the calendar. That's, that's actually more important pretty much than getting in, in, in my view at this point, we can figure out where it's going to be. And, you know, obviously we're going to, we have time to do that, but I find that then that, that then leads to breaking the whole rest of the calendar down into little pieces instead of this one big target, which is UTMB, obviously the biggest one. Now you have this secondary target, which is the three days, whatever we, whatever we do, you know, 75 miles or, you know, 20 hours in three days or something like that. Then we sort of backfill on the other things. The other key thing, by the way, and I'm sure you guys do this too, when you're looking at a, the overall, whatever it is, like in this case, it's, seven and a half, eight months, I will say, 
right out of the gate. Okay. What life things are coming up? Mm. What weddings do you have to go to? What big work trips? What baptisms? Is your spouse uh, got a big work trip? Uh, do, or do you have a, a child graduating from high school or something? Get all yeah. that stuff in there too. All of that life stuff so that those variables are removed and then we can get down to planning. Mm. Right. So, I mean, let me add like the next component to this because we've got, we're going to start where they're at. We've got this anchor points type of finding to do, whether it's a race anchor point, a life anchor point, or a training camp anchor point. Those are kind of the three categories that we just missed. The thing that I'll add to the mix are what are the athletes weaknesses and strengths? And regardless of whether I get a new athlete in or I've been working with an athlete for a long period of time, speaking to John's, let's start where you're at right now. I always use the initial part of the training process, which is normally now December, January, February type of time frame to round out the athlete's weaknesses in as kind of complete of a way as possible. And a lot of athletes know this kind of intuitively, like they just run with friends and they know that, hey, I'm always falling behind on the technical train or I'm always falling behind on the uphills or I'm always, you know, bonking or whatever it is. Like they just notice what their kind of weakness or their discrepancy is. And to Duncan's point of, of trying to find out, you know, sifting through the training process with a new athlete, one of the things that we can do as coaches is to pour through their previous training. And I ask kind of like, I ask two fundamental questions. When were you training at your best? When were you the most fit, the most confident? When, when, when were you kicking ass? And when were you at your worst? And I go back throughout that training history. And this is why training history is so incredibly powerful when you start working with a new athlete or whether you've uh, been working with an athlete for a long period of time. And if you can find those two polarizing endpoints, when were you, when were you at your best and when were you at your worst, you can typically ascertain what was going on during that time that made those two endpoints unfold. Hey, this type of intensity, I was just really kind of like bad at it. Some sort of physiological weakness. This during this time frame, I was really doing well. It was a super high volume, you know, period, and I performed really well. Okay, you react, you adapt really well to to, to high volume. That strengths and weaknesses component is kind of the next point that I that I fold in, and I spend not an inordinate amount of time, but a reasonable amount of time, six to eight weeks or something like that, just working on that low volume type of setting. Let's let's try to develop all of these skills or whatever it is to start to to start to round it out, and do it as far away from the event as possible, because then you're not then you're not trying to like jam too many things into the shoebox, so to speak, right? You're not trying to jam all the fitness, all the race prep and everything else like that. You can round out these weaknesses with it with enough of a space and give them the 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 kind of proper time to grow. What one of my athletes recently uh, mentioned this on a on Dylan's free trail podcast, Abby Hall, where her weakness was downhill technical running, which is a big deal for the events that she's training for UTM, BCCC and things like that. And for the last two years, really, we've made it a point in the early part of the season to work on that as a skill, get on a lot of technical downhill terrain, run some of that downhill terrain a little bit faster and just use repetition to, to, to improve that area. And now 
I wouldn't consider her like the best descender, you know, in the women's pack, but she's pretty freaking good, you know, and her CCC result this year was a, was, was a real testament, uh, was a real testament to that where she's making up a lot of her time on the descents as opposed to the, as opposed to the ascents. So that's the final like point when we're planning a season out, we've got these big things to get the anchor points, right? Where are you at right now? and what your strengths and weaknesses are. I think if you take an inventory of those three things, you've got a really good basis for, to set the whole season up. So now the next question is, is like, how are you gonna do it, right? You've got an inventory of all these things. What do you do first, second, third, fourth, and how do those things like generally flow for you guys? And Duncan, we'll start out with you on this one. Yeah, well, I'll just uh, first I'll add to what you just said about you know the the off season or or furthest out from your target events being the time to make changes. Uh, you know, you see this with athletes who may need to lose some weight of some kind. Yeah. Like this is the time to be making some dietary changes and or you know if you're going to ever have a caloric deficit, it's when you're running eight hours a week pretty easy versus when you're training hard. So I've seen this with numerous athletes. So I think that's a, a key point. But to your your next question, Coop, it really is. I mean, it's, it's out of the textbook. It's least specific to most specific for the target event. You're manipulating the intensity, obviously. You're manipulating the volume, obviously. And then you're manipulating the terrain and or vertical or footing, to your point, as well uh, for specific races. Least specific VO2 max type work, potentially flat road running for an athlete getting ready for a technical race. Most specific, close to the race six, eight months from now, higher volume, perhaps steady state intervals. And I think a real key during that block immediately post immediately prior to their event is the terrain, both vertical and footing. And I think the footing is the thing that gets lost in the shuffle yeah. sometimes the technicality piece. Right. One thing I'd add to that as far as least specific to most is, you know, what I like athletes to do is I call it throw the event out in front of them. And so I think when an athlete does that, Here's grindstone right now, right? And so I think it doesn't hurt if a race is off in the fall to have a conversation about the course, about the race itself, and pick something apart from that race. And, and I, I like athletes to kind of start to slowly, you know, if we, do, if we do it in large chunks, it's too much right now. But if we take a little, like Coop was talking about, technical downhill running you know, or a technical section of the course, but how can we maybe layer in a little bit of that now, even though we're months out mm. and start to kind of get that confidence. Cause then we can go back and be like, Hey, look, we started this technical downhill running in January, February. Right. And then as we get going and we start to get into the more nitty gritty and the specifics and the athlete has already kind of dipped their toe into it. So I would say, I like to add like a sliver of specific work, but specifically to the, to the event itself, if we can with, you know, Andy, your athlete, and that was at Iowa. Yeah, that's tricky, yeah. right? And that and that's where you can get the creative juices going, right? And that 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 makes it a lot of fun. You know, I think. Yeah, he, he immediately is going out to buy one of those, you know, forty degree treadmills or something. You know? <laughs> but, but 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 I'd like to pick up on the least specific to most specific too, because if I know my athlete well enough, so I'll take one of my Western States athletes for this year who lives in the Auburn, Sacramento area, so has access to the environment has access to, I know that he, for example, so this is again, know, know your athlete. I know that he likes using races as training runs and is, and more importantly, is actually able to do it. 
right? We, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we have a, we have a, 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 a coding system with little stars, asterisk, you know, one asterisk is target race, two asterisk is medium, you know, training race and three asterisk is run with your friends or whatever else. So what we, we created these chunks so this, the least specific chunk that he's in right now, flat and fast, yeah. right, is going to is gonna culminate with a relatively flat and fast, I think it's a 30K, right? There's weekend, there's races every weekend up, up in that area. So it's like a flat, fast, paved 30K at the beginning of February. Uh, then he transitions, gets a little bit more hilly and runs way too cool. Now, way too cool is a one star, right? It's far enough away from Western states. It's on the course. So he can, he can kind of empty the tank there and then there's a couple of more races that are two star and three star and and three star and are getting into more vertical and more specific um and so the using races i know we might be getting at this later but i i think that really i mean we say it all the time right it depends on the athlete but for this for clinton this athlete he can he's not going to be have a problem being in seven seven tune-up races going into western states whereas there might be another athlete who could barely do one right Mm -hmm. just because you know they'll turn themselves inside out in that one race so i think it's important to ask those questions and then of course look at the calendar and make sure they can get into these races and that they work in their lives and everything else but i i love i mean that that's that's been as true the the least specific to most specific is 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 as true now as it was you know years ago coop when you first told told us all about this this concept and the science backing it up i mean but i i like to find ways to chunk those so that so that the the athlete knows okay now the mo the least least specific block is ending and we're getting a little bit more specific now and then four weeks from now we're going to get a little so they they know in their head oh this is why we're doing this i'm adding another chapter what is the least least specific to whatever <laughs> it is got a better vocabulary for that for sure for sure um yeah i mean the the thing that the thing that i'll add to how do you actually arrange it is i do like especially with athletes that i've worked with I do like to take inventory of where their general like volume lines of demarcation were in particular during particular phases. And this is, this is really tricky because it's, it's hard for me to just, it's hard for me to describe. I create almost like earmarks for them, like really soft earmarks for them in the calendar, just to say, listen, you're training 20 hours a week during this block last year. That's about where I want you at this year. I think the coaching key to our earlier point of meeting athletes where they're at is not artificially influencing the trajectory to hit that target. Because we've seen this all too often where an athlete is starting at a different level than they were in previous years. And so if you have this artificial target out there, if they're starting out at a higher level, you might want to aim a little bit higher than that earmark. And then if something happens in the middle of it, and this is going to be our next, or this is going to be kind of our last topic. If something happens in the middle of it, they get injured or they have some sort of like life event or whatever. Now that earmark needs to be softened up a little bit. So I have a really hard time. I try to create, that's why I say it's a soft earmark. If it's 20 hours a week, I might give it like a little bit of a 10% spread, but it's a point for me for check from a checks and balances perspective to say, okay, generally at these times, we're going to try to kind of closely mirror what you did in years previous, as long as it worked. If it didn't work, 
then you've got to kind of go back to the drawing board if you think you can do it better. You've got to draw, go back to the drawing board and 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 and, and kind of change some things. But with athletes that have that that have generally found successful training patterns, I want everybody l- listening out there to to really take heart to this next statement. If you generally have had a successful training pattern, a lot of times all you need to do to improve further is just to get out of the way and do it again. And repetition becomes the way that you improve. It's not necessarily more. It's the same over longer periods of time. Go right. ahead, John. You know, I know no, you wanted and, to jump you know, in on that. This brings up actually an interview, and this is kind of a little bit off a slightly different sport, but actually Ironman World Championships. And it was Sam Laidlow who ended up finishing they called it the Norwegian sandwich. I think he was second. Yeah, he was second. But they're like, who's this guy? And he, anyhow, so, you know, the Norwegians are getting all this hype and how they train and this and that. And it's, you know, it's mainstream. But he did, he talked in a little bit about his training. And he just said, you know, I have data from year after year and I know what works for me. And I didn't want to kind of make things, yeah. you know, over the top fancy. I just, I wanted my training to be okay. And he, and I loved that statement that he had. And it wasn't this exuberant, this over the top, I've got to do more and more and more. He's like, this works really well for me. I'm just going to hold it and stay steady with it. And I mean, other factors go into play too, but I I like that statement that he had with about his training. Here's the temptation that a lot of people have. Andy can probably resonate with this because I'm going to use a Western stakes example. I finished in 25 hours last year and I want to finish in 23, 59, 59, right? Or I got a big belt buckle last year in this race. I want to get smaller belt buckle on the elite side. I got third last year and I want to, and I want to win. And a, a lot of the times the answer that, that, that people will come up with, and I think erroneously come up with to solve that riddle of how do I get better is just to do more of something. More of mm-hmm. more volume, more volume of intensity, higher intensity type of training. Sometimes all three combined at once. Like we're just gonna more strength training, altitude interventions, supplement, you know, nutritional supplementation. Like there's usually some something to add into the mix. And I'm not saying that those are invalid. I think a lot of in a lot of cases, tweaking some of those can kind of like bring the balance out. And that's a that's definitely an art of coaching things. But in many cases just doing the same over long periods of time can help unlock that 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 potential you don't have to change much you're changing a couple of things around the edges maybe the overall volume is kind of the same but just kind of doing it again year after year after year and like getting once again getting out of the way makes a really really big difference in the developmental process yeah a total another podcast and you know for sure but this idea of quality training right <laughs> um and you're talking about doing the same thing yeah i would even argue i just wrote down recovery on my little uh my little thing here but uh <laughs> it's just to you know to actually give your give your body an opportunity to actually uh, adapt to the training and absorb it and that's been coming up a lot with athletes i've been coaching it's just actually potentially even doing a little bit less to give yourself an opportunity to get better. (laughs) And I think that's a fear a lot of athletes have is, okay, I hit this mark. Like you're saying, Coop, I got to do more. And then they're neglecting the recovery piece and then they're not getting better. 100%. 100%. I'll I'll add the flip side of that is, you know, I've got an athlete here in Colorado who for a few years have done, uh, done training for Leadville generally is a fast runner flourishes on flatter, smoother footing, and then last year, she uh, went to CCC. 
and, you know, quite a bit different technicality footing wise, vertical wise, and obviously a shorter distance. Um, and, uh, anyway, two to two and a half extra amount of vertical June, July, August compared to the previous years. So it was a, she was willing to make that change and do something that she didn't even enjoy as much or historically hadn't enjoyed. So she made that change. training duration increased, uh, training vertical, obviously increased, uh, training distance either flatlined or slightly decreased in her case just because the terrain was slower. So just bringing that up as an example of here's an athlete who's found success for many years, loved running injury free. And w- it was very willing to make a training change because their target race change. And I cool. see a lot of people that kind of get stuck in their ways, you know, self-included, like oh, I'm going to do the same loop. I always did. Well, yeah, but your race is totally different. Why would you do the same thing again? So, Right. Well, and I, and I would argue that, that that was a quality training right there. You probably had some structure yeah. with that athlete that allowed that to happen. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and sometimes it's looking at the overall calendar and figuring out how to avoid the zeros. You know, there's this just, I'm going to link the, I'm going to link this up cause it actually just came across my wire like yesterday or the day before there's a, a piece of research that just uh, came out that analyzed the Strava data of, I can't remember what the actual number was. Um, so, so don't quote me on this, but a few thousand marathon runners. And they found that the ones that just avoided a couple of zero weeks, I think the number was two had like a 4% faster finisher time. So a lot of times when we're like analyzing all this stuff, like look at the low hanging fruit. Like once again, this is why training history is really powerful. And if you look at it through the lens of what are the simple things that we can solve, eliminating the zeros, maybe changing something slightly structurally, looking at where those big polarizing kind of strengths and weaknesses are. Those are usually pretty easy things to do as opposed to something more ridiculously complicated like trying to do an altitude intervention or, or, or something like that. So uh, I'm going to kind of move on to the, like the next part of this. And we're going to have to do a little bit of forecasting. Everybody who's listening will have to like think, okay, I'm going to get into this training process. I know where my anchor points are. I know what this flow is generally going to look like. What causes you to change course? And we've all been through this as coaches. We lay out, you know, six months of generalized training, not specific training, but this is how the training is going to flow and things like that. And some kind of like something happens. What are some of the biggest, uh, reasons for these course corrections that you that you guys have encountered and andy we're going to start with you for this one well i I think you know since the vast majority of the athletes we coach are are have have professional and family lives outside of running um i would say the biggest time when i end up changing courses when some life thing came, comes along that was not part of the plan in January and upset the apple cart in March. And it's really where the coach has to put on a counseling hat and say, look, it's okay that you missed those two tempo runs. Coop, you're good point. At least we're not going to have a zero week. It's okay that we didn't plan for this. We can, we can move stuff around. We can make changes. But number one is when, when something happens at someone's job or in someone's family, 
frequently and it, it happens to everybody and it disrupts the training. I think, frankly, that's a really good reason to have a coach because you can talk to that coach. You can say, you know, and the coach can tell you, look, you look, you're, you're going to be fine. It's going to be okay. You know, you're going to, um, you're going to get through this. We'll make some adjustments. This has happened before. I think the other one is determining if they have, if they're doing, we, I've talked earlier about tune-up races. If they do a tune-up race, let's say, and it goes horribly, right? They do a 50 miler and they, you know, go three hours slower than they hope to, or they have major nutrition problems or, or something happens, you know, maybe something that was, that was unexpected happens in that 50 mile race. And then a couple of days later, it's time to sit down and have that phone call with your coach and, you know, really try and dive into, you know, well, what went wrong and why did it go wrong? And was it, my fault, me, the coach, was it the circumstances? Was it, you know, and you try and get away from blame and be like, look, it's nobody's fault. We had, but let's make sure we don't, we don't repeat this. So I think for me, those are the two that have caused change courses. You know, if I'm, we're talking about like a seven, eight month plan, let's say like we were all talking about people have gotten it through the lotteries. It'd be, it'd be, you know, those kinds of things. And if you, if you've had experience with those happening as a coach, then you can assure the athlete, Hey, this, you know, obviously without using any names, but you know, I had something similar happen with an athlete last year when they were building up to UTMB and it worked out. Okay. and, And here's what we did. And because they, athlete needs assurance needs understanding and you know the, the, you know because because here we are in january saying oh we got to do all this we got to nail it you got to and then march comes around and something disrupts it it's like oh yeah so you you kind of have to be ready to finesse that uh, so i think a way to finesse that and that i've learned uh over the course of years is when we're creating this long-range planning as opposed to just kind of showing it to the athlete and we use a couple of different methods you can do it kind of natively within training peaks or you can use a a google sheet like is kind of outlined in my book not just using that and like hucking it over to the athlete but then saying these are the things that are going to matter the most because to your point andy when those things happen and you have to move and you know kind of push things around Typically, the strategy that you're using is you're taking away or you're adapting more of the things that are less important so that you can keep the things intact as much as possible that are more important. And having gone through that before, then the athlete can kind of internalize. It's like, okay, like this is an okay change because I know that the more important stuff, we're going to change less or kind of not at all. One thing I like to bring up with athletes, and I think Coop, I heard this on your podcast. Rebecca Rush was on your pod, Queen of Pain. Yeah, yeah she's pretty good at this because <laughs> she's right. always got, she, she's always doing dangerous stuff and having the course correct. You know, yeah. <laughs> Shout but, out but, to Rebecca. One liner that, that really stood out to me, and maybe I heard it somewhere else from her, was, uh, "I like to be a hundred percent consistent, eighty percent of the time." Is that a Rebecca quote? <laughs> that might be. That sounds like something. I think it is. Really, I, I think that really holds a, a, a lot of truth for athletes, you know, particularly non-professional athletes where, hey, I've got a training plan in place. It's 365 days. If I nail 322 of those, I'm doing pretty damn good, yeah, you know? And I think keeping those athletes engaged, even though they're missing their tempo run or they miss a tempo block or they change their training race, uh, just reminding them of that number, I think is is pretty vital. And I mean, I always just remind athletes, it's not set in stone. And 
And I, I, I don't know, lately I've been kind of chuckling a little bit at the long range plan because, you know, we're trying to predict the future. We're trying to say, hey, two months from now, we're going to be getting into this type of work. And that would be great. But like, like Andy was saying, life comes up, you know, things are going to shift. And so I think that's I, whenever I, the athlete realizes that, that, hey, we're, this isn't going to be to a T. I don't know if anyone else, any of us here have ever coached an athlete through a long range plan where it's gone to a T. It's always shifted a little bit. And why is that? You know, how are they responding to the, to the workload and the training? You know, uh, like Andy was saying, you know, things pop up. Um, and so, yeah, you have to be flexible um, for sure. It's going to shift. So the, the whole, you know, I created this acronym ADAPT, right? And it's, it was kind of the main orientation for that was, is what, ha- what do you do when shit hits the fan during a race? The same can be true for long range planning. I mean, you have an injury, whether it's an acute injury or a chronic injury, or you have a life event like Andy was mentioning earlier. I think you can k- take some of that strategy is first off, don't panic. Right. And the panic never gets anybody anywhere. And that's the first thing people think about when they whenever there's a training interruption is like, oh, my God, I'm going to I'm going to miss out. And I'm going to comment on this in just a second. I'm going to miss out on whatever whatever I was supposed to do at that one particular time. The, the, the key is, is just to move forward. Okay. How are we going to rearrange things and how are we going to, how are we going to emphasize the things that matter more and de-emphasize the things that matter less? I think that that's the general strategy for adaptation. Whenever you're in a long range situation, you have to miss several days, a week, two weeks of training is to look at the entirety of the picture. These things matter the most. We're going to try to anchor them as much as possible. And then the things that do not matter as much, we're just going to de-emphasize. And I think that that's a better way to do it as opposed as opposed to trying to play the makeup game. Like, oh, I missed this week of training. So now I'm going to try to like shoehorn it in like eight weeks down the line or whatever. The other thing to, to, to that I think everybody needs to keep in mind when whenever they do go through this, because it, it is a win, not if, is that your opportunity cost in most situations is removing the ability to improve. So let's just say you wiped out two weeks of training and you had to cross train for those two weeks for what for whatever reason, weather, you know, personal life circumstances and things like that. As long as you can do a bare minimum amount during that time, and it's not that much, three days a week, 30 minutes on the bike or something like that, your fitness probably won't get that much worse. You'll feel a lot worse. But in reality, if we were to stick you on a treadmill and do a graded exercise test before and afterwards, those they'd look almost identical, if not exactly identical. The opportunity cost is whatever you could do during those two weeks to get a little bit better. It's not getting worse. You're just kind of you're you're just maintaining at that point. If you reframe that missed time in that type of opportunity cost, I think that that helps a tremendous amount on the back end whenever the sky starts to clear out and those thunderclouds start to roll away Mm -hmm. because then you're not in this panic state of I have to make that stuff up. So keep that in mind whenever there is an interruption in training that you're you're not losing anything. The opportunity cost is the, the, the improvement trajectory that you've just then put the pause button on for that period of time. Right. Okay. Yeah. So last point, when is it, when are there too many things on the calendar? Cause we all have eyes that are bigger than our stomachs. 
we want to race too much. We want to do, you know, too many training camps and things like that. And this is a question that I get asked that I honestly don't have a good answer to. So maybe we can kind of like flush it out here. I get asked on social media about this all the time. How many races is too much? How many hundred miles are too much in a season? How many hundred K's are too much? Should I do a hundred K four weeks before my hundred mile or that like too much question comes in a lot of different varieties based on you guys's experience when you're kind of laying everything out we, and I'm gonna start with you because you've got a shitty grin on your face. I'm sure you guys <laughs> a good story on this. When when is it too much, and do you have to like realistically pump the brakes a little bit? All right, I, I I'm dying to jump in here because I, I I I'm not gonna use her name, but I have an athlete, and I know she would she won't be upset that I share this. She she's one of these streak athletes, right? She's been running every day yes. for like ten years or something. She's in the she 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 lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's in the Tahoe T two hundred, and she runs with a different group like five days a week you know <laughs> she runs twice a day sometimes she you know she's got her, her her talkative group her run with the dogs group she's got her and literally i think the reason she reached out to cts to get me to coach her is to have her tell her you know you're doing too much put the reins so, on yeah. i mean uh, honest yeah. honestly it, it is very much like maybe you should just run with four groups this week or you know just so i mean that's an extreme example but I think there are athletes out there that are definitely in them. More is better. But by the way, this athlete probably does 95% of her training at, you know, recovery pace or, you know, very, very easy aerobic pace almost all the time. So she's not at risk, you know, like a lot of streak runners, the main goal of their run is so they can run the next day. But she is uh, she is adapting to this and realizing that if you look, whether it's at looking at a week or a month or a whole season going all the way out to Tahoe 200, you know, that's the goal. And so some of this stuff is going to have to be taken away. And we're going to have to have an honest conversation of, you know, one of these two things is going to be taken away. Which one's it going to be? I'll let you decide which one it is, but one of them's going. Um, I think those are the conversations and, and they do vary athlete to athlete right now. This athlete's an extreme, but there are others. Maybe, maybe they already have eight races on the calendar between now and UTMB and they should have four or they, you know, they're, they're, they want to pace. There's a lot of people these days who are social and they want to yeah. go with their buddies to pace and crew. And, and that, you know, it, it screws a whole weekend for them because they stay up all night and they pace a few miles. And, you know, uh, so I think those are the kinds of conversations that really are important to have and, when you work with the athlete of what, how much is too much. Mm. Fitzy, what do you think? I mean, I think it, it definitely depends. I'm curious your guys' thoughts on this, the, the distance of the race and the athlete's approach on the day. I think Andy was talking about your athlete there that could, in a way, kind of gain momentum with these races. It wasn't like yeah. these events were taken away from this athlete. They were, yeah. you know, they were going into them with very much so a level head, putting ego out the door, not trying to crush it. So I think it very much so depends on the individual and how they might approach these events. If it's full gas, right? I would even go down to the 30K. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, a 30K, if we look at the demands of a 30 kilometer race, you're, you're working at a very high percentage of, of, of effort. And for athletes that are building off of that, I mean, that can be, that can be really hard for them. <laughs> so I think it really depends on the individual and how they, the, the, the key word is approach the event. Are they, I call it like a laid back kind of weekend training run. That's going to have such a different impact because the cost of the recovery clock is going to be much different compared to full gas race mode. 
So I, I think it totally depends on the distance. Here's the dichotomy in that though, John, like the less experienced you are, the more performance you're going to get out of learning how to race, just the race, like the whole race environment. Like you just, you gain a lot of performance just by like, Hey, I got to go run a hundred miles. I don't know what's going to happen. And each one gets a little bit better because of that learning process, kind of like irrespective of the, of the distance. And that's more important. The, with the, the less experience you have, the more experience you have, that racing component becomes less important because you've kind of like learned all the tricks. You've learned how to right. adapt. Like we were talking about earlier, you've learned how to kind of avoid the failure points and things like that. The, the kind of the, the dichotomous piece of it is, is as you become more experienced, your opportunity to use races as training is better because you have better control over the effort right? Because you do have that experience versus an inexperienced runner. Like you just mentioned, they're going to go into like the shorter races and just, you know, kind of annihilate themselves every time. And, and, and so I think that that's something to recognize, right? Because it definitely is a push and pull on the experience side. I kind of think people need to like inexperienced people, they need to kind of race a lot just to get their feet wet and just learn through the trial and error process and kind of like learn, learn by fire, but they're going to screw it up. Like that's just part of the nature of it. You're going to make so many mistakes, you know, your first 10, 20, 50, you know, ultra marathons. And eventually you figure out like 10% of it. It's, it's oh. usually the curve, right? So anyway, it's, I, I just wanted to tack on to that, to that particular comment, comment that there's this dichotomous type of relationship between experience and how you can actually execute a race from a training perspective. Right. And then as coaches, I mean, it's up to us obviously to help these athletes balance the other work, the other yeah. training with these events. That's where I think a lot of athletes get it wrong is, talking about quality training, they end up being there. We look at time, that intensity, how much, you know, intensity is there. It's too much. Right. So I think if we can dial back, if we're really going to leverage using training races, you know, make sure that we're kind of having this balance and the recovery again is there for these individuals. Um, I think is huge, but I, I'm getting a lot of athletes that want, and, and I'll admit, I, and maybe we've all been here, but I've done, I want to say I've done 500 milers in, in, a, in a calendar year. I think it was like my second or third year of running right. ultras. And I was just like on a roll, you know, I was kind of picking up little <laughs> nuggets every time I did it. And, uh, but what are your guys' thoughts as we get into these 20, you know, 24 hour plus events? What is like, do you guys have like a rule? Like, Hey, I'm only going to allow an athlete to do 200s, you know, the typical spring fall. Are you guys, what are your thoughts on the longer hundred? Yeah, I would even go up to 200 milers. That, you that. know, I once again, going back to the questions I, I get, that's yeah. another one I get a lot of. Like how many 200 milers can I do in a year? Or is the recovery different between race X and race Y and the, the duration being kind of the difference between those two? Yeah, and obviously you can throw it. It depends. But did you guys have a general, like have you had athletes, you know, that you've coached through four or five plus hundred milers in a year and they're successful and that's a sustainable kind of way about going through things or is it just kind of like a one-off year that an athlete might push the envelope with a lot of racing or what do you guys it's gotta think? be a special circumstance you know a special athlete special circumstance you know, grand slam triple crown yeah. Right. Right. um yeah no real hard rule but I, I generally think you know the the two a races either 100k 100 mile or further per year as a maximum two supporting races in that 50 mile maybe 100k realm and two other supporting races, maybe in that trail marathon, 50 K realm. Now, if I had to boil it down to, to a generic boilerplate, that is my general guidance to athletes. Like, Hey, you got six races, 
you got a, a six hour race, you got a 15 hour race and you got a 30 hour race, maybe do that twice. And right. very individual, but that is boilerplate. Yeah. Yeah. And what I've said fits is if, if it's something like the slam or the triple crown. So the two like big examples, I encourage them to get around the mindset of thinking of it. The, the grand slam is one big 11 week long event. Right. Yes. right. In other yeah. words, so that they get, uh, they get their mindset around the event starts at Old Dominion or Western States, and it ends at Wasatch, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all about the recovery in between the races and everything. Similar with Triple Crown, right? A month apart. Uh, maybe right. now there's a little bit more than a month apart because Tahoe's a little earlier. But but that you yeah. know, but aside from aside from that, I'm with Duncan. I think I mean we've talked about 200s on podcasts several times. I think the 200 is an interesting nugget. Both of my 200 athletes this year are doing a hundred training race. You know, which is yeah. you know several months out. Mm-hmm. But that's and and a lot of that is about dialing in their gear and their nutrition and overnight. And because as we've talked about, and Coop knows this better than anybody you know, the pace is so much slower in a 200. There's so many other things you need to work out around sleep and lighting and gear and pacing and, and nutrition that I think getting a hundred, you know, a training race hundred, uh, is a smart, is smart. Full gas. I'll just chime in too. Like I think back to the previous question too, about when do we intervene and and change training schedules or whatnot? The, The biggest thing I see is, it isn't necessarily recovery from these events. It's the, the cost to the rest of their life. Yes. It's their family currency. It's their employment currency. It's the time off. It's the travel. It's that is a thing that people overlook. Like, yeah, you can run eight of these things a year and you'll likely be okay. As long as you're not an idiot, but it's what else are you spending? Are you spending that family currency? You know, the, are you going to lose your job? You know, and uh, that's the thing I think people need to really factor in when they're making these decisions. So I'm going to ping off of that to, and I'll answer, I'll answer John's question directly. I think that the longer duration races, the 200, the 250s and things like that take longer to recover from because of all of that. And it's really interesting because if you look at this through a pure physiological lens, and this data is early stage, but I think that it's going to play out like this. If you just look at muscle damage, which is typically our, that's kind of like our hero barometer for how much recovery you need after a race, how much physiological recovery, I'm adding that caveat in there specifically, how much physiological recovery you need after a race, it tends to peak at like the 100K or 100 mile distance and then actually come down at the 200 mile distance. We can look at Guy Mies, you know, our mutual colleague here who's been on this podcast before, all of his research after Tour de, Tour de Jean, it's, and, it's, and it's very clear that the markers of muscle of muscle damage are typically less after those long duration races as opposed to 50k 100k 100 mile type of distance especially for the especially for the faster runners however to duncan's point recovery is not solely predicated by the physiological muscle damage that has incurred there's a cost to doing all of the training going into it and i also i i strongly believe that there is a huge emotional depletion with doing a lot of these longer ultras. Anytime there's an extension of what you've done before, you go to Tour de Jean, you go do the Tahoe Tahoe 200, you go do Cocodona, which is going to come up here pretty quickly in May. 
the um, the emotional toll that that takes just the event itself just the event because you're going so much further and you're digging so much deeper than you have before it just takes time to like recover those emotional bullets and then you add on to it everything that duncan was just mentioning the duties is otherwise specified all of the brownie points that you have expended mm-hmm. with your significant other which for me is a lot i'm constantly in a in a state of building those back up with my wife liz um i think in some in some total the balance of the recovery leans to the longer ones you just need more of it as compared to the mm-hmm. shorter distance irrespective of the physiological makeup however we can kind of quantify that at the end that these other factors that we were talking about supersede the physiological ones that we can you know draw blood and and figure out what you know biomarkers are higher or lower and whatever type of type of athlete i just think that the the things right. is otherwise specified are a greater component Mm-hmm. Right. And I think all of us here can agree, or hopefully all of us would agree on, we want more than anything, our athletes to kind of have this be a lifelong kind of endeavor. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing to kind of fold into this is like, I always like to remind athletes, like, is this something that's going to align with kind of, you know, you sticking with the sport for many years to come and, yeah, you know, sometimes it's worth the risk, but I think, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot on the line there too. Well, to, to that point, John, to kind of keep this theme going of, of when is it too much, right? What I like to do a lot with my athletes that have this, you know, perpetual, you know, racing, uh, satiation that they need, that they need to have is to kind of prevent the, or to kind of present the performance context that all of those different events kind of mean for each other and that's not that's not easy to do it is a lot of like educated guessing you know okay you're going to take three percent off of your time you know everything else being equal for this race if you do this race kind of beforehand but i think starting that conversation is important because a lot of athletes are okay with that like if you say listen i want to do to john's point 600 milers or 500 milers in a year you know, the fifth one, you're probably taking 5% off of the top as opposed to if you just focused on that, right, throughout the entirety of the year. They People can rationalize that and say, you know what, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to perform maximally at this event, so I'm going to forego. Or they can make the choice and say, you know what, that's not that big of a deal for me. I would rather have the experience of doing all of these five races, even if my whatever like last race is compromised to kind of some some certain extent i'm not going to say that i have like a perfect formula for determining that but you can at least say better worse or the same right you can at least like look at that performance context and say okay well here's how we would rack and stack these is that an appropriate like trade-off for you and it helps contextualize this how much is too much with how meaningful is the performance at the end of the day compared to the experience of doing all of these things? Yeah, John, you presented, I, I won't name the athlete, but a couple of years ago you presented on a, an athlete you coached who did the Grand Slam. And my one major takeaway from that was I don't think he had a single training day, yeah. you know, at, for nine weeks, right? You know, oh. he was done training on June 3rd or June 15th, you know, two weeks before. And so if you're one of these athletes who's a streaker, or you're one of these athletes who loves the training process, you really need to think like, okay, you know, do I want to give up an entire eight to 12 weeks of not doing my favorite runs in my local area, not hitting my favorite mountain, not doing my favorite group runs. You know, you gotta be willing to make that trade off. I think people mostly, if you're going for the grand slam, you're thinking about that, but 
It's a good reminder. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, and one thing this athlete valued was spending time with family and what it allowed for was, Hey, look, I'm going to go to Lake Tahoe on the stand up paddleboard with my kids. Yeah. yeah. Really yeah. enjoy this moment, you know? Yeah. And so I think if you can factor that in and find, yeah. find that it's, it's, it's great. Here, yeah. here, here's the physiology behind that for everybody to start to like contextualize how much racing is too much racing and how to set up the training that we all mentioned from impulse to improvement. Meaning if I do a workout today, that's the impulse. When do I actually see that improvement from a time course perspective? It's about four to six weeks hmm. for an endurance for an, for an endurance activity. Meaning if I do a workout today, we're recording this on January 26th. I'm not going to see any realistic performance improvement from that unless I keep doing it until the end of the end of February. Realistically, mm-hmm. it takes that long to build up all of the cellular mechanisms and things like that to result in an actual improvement. And so when you think about the training proposition of I, I've got an ultra marathon here and ultra marathon six weeks down the line and another one like four weeks down the line. Sometimes you can paint the do I want to train and how much do I want to train with knowing that knowing that proposition that it's going to take about four to six weeks. And a lot of the times what you're just missing is, as I mentioned earlier on the, you know, the training interruptions piece, it's just the opportunity cost to improve. You're going to hit your first race at peak fitness and the opportunity cost is you can't improve from the first race to the fourth race if we're looking at a grand slam type of deal. So. I encourage athletes that are thinking about doing a lot of races to not only think about the, the, the cost and the tax and the duties as otherwise specified and how many bullets are you expending in kind of whatever area, but also realistically, how do you expect to improve and what the time course of those improvements are relative to the breaks in between the races. And if you don't have enough break between a race, that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But make sure you realize that you're going to reach peak fitness kind of before that first race and then just almost like hold on for dear life, life afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's not for everyone. It sounds no. kind of yeah. maybe fun and sexy, but it, it can be I've some I've had some athletes kind of go insane because they're like, oh, my God, I just want to run. And exactly. I'm like, probably well, we rest. Yeah, exactly. so. I feel good. Well, so you run into the thing where they feel really good after one race and there's not mm. enough timing to have like a training impulse. That right. is actually extremely difficult to manage. That's when you have to really put on like both your counseling and your physiology hat and say, whoa, 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 whoa. like let's just have a minimum viable product here to make sure mm-hmm. that the deterioration isn't too steep or it's, it's not at all at all. And then like, that's all you need. And th- like you said, John, that's hard for, for a person to do when they're used to training like 20 hours a week. And then you're telling them to train like four or six hours a week. That like that on the, that on face value, it's like, what do I do with all this extra time and energy? Yeah. You know, run club Wednesday evening. It's like, well, shoot. Yeah, you know, bank yeah. um, more brownie points. That's what I tell the dude. Just like my, 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 my good, my good friend Joe Kulak, who did the Grand Slam twenty years ago. He said the summer he did the Grand Slam, he got more housework done than any other summer of his life. Because <laughs> basically, he just came home from each race and sat around. And did his his wife just made him do housework because he wasn't running. That's perfect. That's, that's what I tell people during a taper: like replace all the light bulbs that you haven't replaced. Right. You know. Do 
do all like the easy, like the easy home renovation projects that aren't that physically tasking to taxing just to like fill the void of whatever energy expenditure that you're deficient on during your tapering process. (laughs) Awesome. That's a great place to leave it guys. I I appreciate your time. I hope the listeners uh, can come away with some kind of reasonable ideas of how to uh, arrange their training calendars. I always appreciate you guys' insight because you three have been in the game for a long period of time. Collectively, how much coaching and running experience do we have between all of us? Maybe 60 years? Right, twenty. I'm only five years at CTS. Andy's got, but, and, yeah. Andy's got sixty by himself because he's old. <laughs> I would guess. I would guess, Coop, that we have eighty. I mean, I've got twenty-eight. Duncan's got to have twenty. We've got eighteen, nineteen, yeah. Twenty. Yeah. So it's sixty between the three of us, and then, and then Fitz. And then Fitz, you're you're the young, you're the you're the, baby. the young buck, yeah, right now, yeah. But I'm over, over a decade. It's over a decade. Yeah. yeah. So seventy. Wow. We're like uh, seventy years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. We're <laughs> we're headed up in the age group there. Anyway, that's yeah. not the answer for now. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. Let's do it again. Yeah, for hey, sure. Hey, that was a lot of fun. That was great. That's great. All right, folks. There you have it. There you go. Much thanks to coaches Duncan, AJW, and John Fitzgerald for coming on the podcast today and enlightening us with how we do it with our athletes always have a great time talking with those uh, coaches because as we mentioned at the very end of the podcast we have just a tremendous amount of collective collective experience amongst the group of us and I always learn something something that I'm going to take away for the athletes that I work with in particular I hope you guys garnered some valuable nuggets of information on this mainly that you can set your anchor points first what your races are and what your life events are and what training camps that you want to undertake throughout the course of a training season. Second, ascertain what your strengths and weaknesses are. Look at where you're good and where you are not so good. Focus on the things that you might have a weakness in first and then gradually move towards your strengths. Third, then once you have all of those things laid out, take a hard look and see if you've got too much on the calendar too much racing, too many life events, too many things that cluster around each other that might not leave enough space for the training and for the adaptive process. And finally, once it's all said and done, don't be bashful about having to change course. Life events happen, injuries happen, things get in the way of the training process and you shouldn't feel bad about those things happening, realize that the opportunity cost is not necessarily a loss in fitness. The opportunity cost is not being able to progress with the training or the time that you have actually missed. Always be willing to adapt your training to the current situation that you have. And if that current situation is I'm injured or I'm missing some, or I'm missing some training because of a life event, that's okay. Everybody is going to be okay if you have a solid plan laid out. If you think that you're a good candidate for coaching, you like this dialogue between all of our coaches, feel free to reach out to me on social media or you can go to trainright.com. We will get you set up there. A link to that will be in the show notes. And I hope if anything, this podcast highlights some of the things that we do as coaches and how we try to help our athletes achieve the most amount of success possible. Appreciate the heck out of all you listeners out there. 
As always, this podcast is nothing without you, the listeners. It's always brought to you endorsement and sponsorship free so we can have conversations like this that are kind of unadulterated and as unfiltered as absolutely possible. And none of that can occur without you, the listeners out there enjoying this podcast and perhaps sharing it with your training friends and running buddies. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. 